Well, it probably wouldn't be an unusual thing at this point for someone to ask you about the Christmas spirit, whether you're in the Christmas spirit or for you to rate the Christmas spirit in your home. But if you're like me, that just raises the question, what is this Christmas spirit everyone keeps talking about? If you're a, real, a retailer, Christmas spirit is that willingness for us all to go out and buy more than we should, more than we can afford. For most kids, maybe Christmas spirit is that anticipation of the coming flood of presents and the daydreaming, even the scheming about what you'll ask for and how you'll get it. Like little Ralphie trying to get the Red Ryder BB gun. For the rest of us, maybe Christmas spirit is just something like feelings of joy and warmth and love. Maybe it means time for family, time to give and hence express love to others. Time to just have some peace, so to put your, your conflicts aside for just a little bit. One little article I saw on the web this week about what Christmas spirit is just said it's this word, hopefulness, whatever that means. Or another one said it's exemplified in the innocence of children and their ability to imagine and dream. Another one said it's positive thinking about the next year. Or maybe closer to the truth, maybe Christmas spirit is getting together and doing something special for those who are less fortunate. I thought about that specific theme at Christmas time this week when I was listening to Christmas songs. My iTunes has a a Christmas shuffle, and so eventually it came to this wonderful 80s song, We Are the World, We Are the Children. Remember that? We are the ones to make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're we're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a brighter day, just you and me. Good song. Great music video. But ironically, the recording of it had as many problems as you'd expect from trying to get 50 rock stars together to work on one song. Michael Jackson who wrote the song, never showed up to record with the other singers. And no one seems to know why exactly, but it's rumored that one of the producers the day before called him a creep. Bitter arguments took place, not surprisingly, about who gets to sing what and who gets to sing with whom and and how to sing it and what order they would be in. Waylon Jennings walked out at one point. They were moving slowly enough, bickering enough, that at one point Stevie Wonder told the whole group that if they didn't hurry up, he and Ray Charles would be driving everyone home that night. (laughs) And then there was that other 80s Christmas song, I think it was a year before. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? This was kind of the hipper version, seemed like it had more of the British constituency, more hairspray involved in that group. But that song wasn't as good, in my opinion. It rightly lamented you know, the problem of world poverty, world famine, but then oddly said, I think it was Bono, his line, well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. What? I mean, yeah, we're thankful it's not us, but uh, that doesn't come across right, does it? It sounds not quite altruistic. 
It said stupid things like, feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. Like, maybe we shouldn't feed them 364 other days of the year. And this humanitarian project also had its share of conflict. Several fights over who gets to sing what and who gets to sing how long. It got so bad that the producer had to let people record whatever they wanted, and then he would just edit out whatever he didn't like for the final mix. Apparently, Boy George and George Michael were in a bitter fight the whole time. Cat fight, uh, I guess. Um, well, I'm not making fun of these songs just to, just to have fun, just to make fun of them. Although they're an easy target. I, I like these songs, even though it's a, a guilty pleasure, I guess. But these songs raised millions of dollars. And I'm all for the Western world fighting global poverty. My point is this, even with this much Christmas spirit, we still have problems. Even with the best intention, most noble efforts, we still can't leave our issues behind. We all have issues. Even when you get a group of famous, talented, wealthy people together to volunteer their time, to take no payment for it, to work on a problem that's out there, they still come with problems in here. Christmas spirit really isn't that lasting. It really isn't that earth-shattering. Whether it's in a studio or whether it's in your living room. So I'm all for joy. I'm all for warmth and love, family time, gift-giving, and even a little bit of gift-getting. I'm all for it happening a little bit more at Christmas, but don't all of these realities, even at their best, shine but just for a moment? And even when they shine the brightest, aren't they all nestled in a whole lot of clay? There's a great Imogen Heap song. An unusual Christmas song, but probably not an unusual Christmas experience. Listen to this, just lines from what you'd hear at your family Christmas party. It's that time of year, leave all our hopelessnesses aside just for a little while. Tears stop right here, I've no, I know we've all had a bumpy ride. How did you know? It's what I always wanted. Could never have too many of these. Quit kicking me under the table. Will somebody make her shut up about it? Can we settle down, please? Bite tongue. Deep breaths, count to ten, nod your head. I think something's burning. Now you've ruined the whole thing. Someone, get the smoke alarm. Whoever put on this music better quickly remove it. Pour me another. Oh, don't wag your finger at me. And the song ends with the repetition, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of here. Well, I hope you don't have one of those Christmas celebrations tonight or tomorrow, but, but I think we've all tasted a little bit of that, that even at the, at the warmest of family times, there's still conflict, there's still bumping of heads. And let's be honest, and many of you know this all too well, Christmas is a flat-out painful time for many. For parents who are too poor to express their love to kids in any gifts. It's painful for those who have recently lost a loved one and now come to their first Christmas without 
so-and-so, for couples who are unable to have children, Christmas is a difficult time. So much of it is focused on kids. For those in estranged families, for those of the outcast of the family, for those who have to endure obnoxious, difficult families and the pressure cooker of Christmas dinners, for fathers who are out of work or about to be, Christmas is painful. And even just for those who struggle with unexplainable, immovable depression all year round, Christmas intensifies it because because of the joy and the celebration and the tinsel and the giggles that are all around them. It just seems odd, out of place, horribly ironic. Christmas in general for many is painful. Wow, what a Christmas downer, right? Someone's saying, get that guy a drink, man, (laughs) chill out. Uh, My point is not to show you all the cracks and instability in your Christmas celebrations, though you know they're there, but instead to argue that we have to find a greater hope than all of this, that all of this is pointing us someplace else, that we need greater peace and greater joy than that which we seem to be able to muster up within ourselves or that which we hope to get and tap out of another. No surprise, I think we can find the source of more hope and more joy in the Bible no surprise. You came to a church tonight and you're you're hearing a, a Christian preacher talk who preaches the Bible. I think the answers to some of these questions are in God's word. And I think here we find good news. The good news starts with admitting the struggle, the problem, the difficulty, the headaches of it all. Christianity doesn't say you have to ignore the pain. Christianity doesn't say that you have to ignore all the crappy stuff around. Instead, it has a spot for them. It has an explanation for them. It gives us hope outside of ourselves. The Bible gives us hope outside of our circumstances. The Bible gives us hope outside of our possessions. The Bible gives us hope, dare we say it, even outside of Christmas. At least as we celebrate it as families. Now let me try to give us some hope from the Bible. Let's ask what Jesus' birth means according to the original first century source of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and then Luke chapter 1 and 2. You actually see Christmas spirit defined there in those early chapters of these gospel accounts. As people hear about the coming of the Messiah, or they actually get to lay eyes on this Messiah who's now born, they express different emotions. It it says they do different things. It says that they treasured these things. They pondered these things. They didn't have all the questions answered, so sometimes it says they wondered about these things. Sometimes an angel shows up and they they fear. They're afraid. They marvel. They rejoice. They glorify God. They praise God. Why? Why all these different emotions, responses to the coming of Jesus? Or another way to ask the question is, why did he come? 
What does his coming mean? Well, you also have hints there in these early chapters of Matthew and Luke about what his coming means, what it says that he is and came to do. So it says that God has come to us in the coming of Jesus. We sang that earlier. Emmanuel, God with us. So the whole world can rejoice. Now, Luke 2, it's good news of great joy for all the people. A Savior has come. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now, peace has come. Or at least, peace, global peace, real and lasting peace, has started to come. Even if it hasn't yet come in all of its fullness. It's peace on earth, as the kids sang for us earlier. Light has come to darkness. And then you have this one. Redemption has come. Anna, the prophetess in Luke chapter 2, she's in the temple and she sees Simeon, a, a, a priest in the temple, lay eyes on Jesus. She comes over and it says that Anna began to give thanks to God and speak of him, speak of Jesus, to all who were waiting for redemption. Luke 2.38, waiting for redemption. I'd like to camp out on those three words tonight, waiting for redemption, and ask and answer a few questions about this redemption to help us think about what the coming of Christ means and, and how we embrace it, how we as Christians further embrace it, more strongly embrace it and rejoice in it. So the first question is this, what does the word redemption mean? This is important because in our culture today, whenever redemption is used outside of Bible, outside of religion, outside of Christianity, it's usually used in a little bit of a different way. It often means something like vindication. Redemption equals vindication. It's that final victory after being down and out. So redemption in movies. I saw this week that there's some Jamie Foxx movie called Redemption. I haven't seen it. In it, he plays the founder of the Crips gang. And he later goes on, get this, to write children's books and, and promote peace. He's even nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Which reminds me of Stephen Wright's joke. I'd kill for a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and there's that Shawshank Redemption movie. I have seen it. That's a good one. Where eventually Morgan Freeman gets out of prison and finds the buried money under the tree. If you haven't seen it, sorry, I just ruined it for you. <laughs> the cruel and crooked prison warden, you know, is swindled, and the two good guys are free and rich and uh, apparently pen pals. That's the story. It's a redemption story. So redemption in movies, notice this, it's self-recovery, isn't it? It's self-salvation. They're stories of self-made overcoming but redemption in scripture is quite different. It's being released from a bondage or a slavery by someone else's doing. By someone else's power or by someone else's payment. But certainly not the power or the payment of the one who's being redeemed. It's similar to the way we use the word rescue. Or being rescued. No one says, I rescued myself. I haven't heard that too much. 
No, we talk about being rescued. It's something that someone does for you and to you precisely because you can't rescue yourself. You need, you need their help. So similarly in the Bible, no one can redeem themselves. That's the very nature of the word. So redeem, redemption has to include concepts like bondage, helplessness, rescue, a cost for that rescue, and then freedom on the other side of that rescue. That's what redemption means here in Luke 2.38. Next question, who is waiting for redemption and why are they waiting? Well, this redemption theme goes back thousands of years. The second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, begins with a redemption story. God's people there are in slavery in Egypt, and God redeems them through power and might. You might know ten plagues. God redeems them from the cruel tyranny and the captivity of the Egyptians to set them free, free to worship, free to know Yahweh God. There's another story we don't talk about too much that's about redemption In the prophets, Hosea is a prophet who redeems a gal named Gomer. Now, I know one Gomer. He's kind of a cowboy who lives in Los Alamos. He's a guy. A girl named Gomer? Get this, Hosea is a prophet, and God tells him he not only has to marry a girl named Gomer, but that she's a prostitute. He's going to marry a prostitute. Because God's prophets often have to do some kind of odd-looking demonstration, some kind of living illustration of what God's wanting to communicate to the people. The, The prophets hear from God and then communicate to the people. And sometimes they have to live out these living illustrations of what God's saying to the people. How many of you have ever bought a bread called Ezekiel 4 9 bread? I have. Go ahead. You won't be too embarrassed afterwards. Ezekiel 4.9 is an interesting passage. By itself, it just describes different in- ingredients that would go well in bread. Makes for a great label on a, a healthy bread. Except, in context, God's telling Ezekiel to make himself some bread and cook it over human feces. The reason for having Ezekiel do this weird thing is to give a vivid picture that the people, the Israelites, had one, defiled themselves like this bread was being defiled by being baked over human feces, and two, that the people would soon eat and drink in dismay, just like Ezekiel was eating in dismay after baking his bread over dung. You get the point. I don't think Ezekiel 4.9 is made that way. That kind of bread you can buy in Vitamin Cottage or Whole Foods or something. I don't think it's made that way. Don't worry. But in context, it's one of those examples where the prophets are given this word picture to live out. Hosea is one of those word pictures where God has him marry a prostitute in order to give a living illustration of Israel's waywardness from their God and yet God's faithfulness, undying faithfulness to them, his love for them, despite their gross and persistent sin. Hosea marries Gomer. 
At one point, she leaves Hosea to return to her life of immorality. And we're not exactly told how, but eventually this leads to her being in slavery. And she's sold in slavery, likely as a sex slave. Hosea buys her. God tells Hosea, go and buy her. Yes, she's been wayward. Yes, she has sinned. Yes, she's violated the covenant, just like you people have. And demonstrate my love for my people, my persistent love for my people, by buying her back and keeping her as your wife. So a redemption story from slavery by a payment made in order to be restored to covenant love. There's also the story of redemption in the exile from Babylon. So there, the people of God had been taken away from their promised land, and they're in exile. And eventually, after 70 years, a generation or so, God brings them back to the land. They've been, they've been redeemed, right? Redemption story. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. And God set them free to return to the land. But get this. Most of the people that came back thought that the slavery was still going on, that in a sense, they'd been kind of redeemed and yet not fully redeemed. They were still, they thought, in exile. Even though they were back in the land, back geographically, they were still under the rule of someone else. So Ezra 9, which records these times, prays to God, brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery even though they're back in the land. We're slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he's granted some reviving to set up the house of God and repair its ruins and have protection in Jerusalem. They're back in the land, but they still see themselves as in exile. They've only been half redeemed. They're waiting for redemption. It took me a long time to get there, but that's what it means here. When Anna says she went around speaking to those who were waiting for the redemption that was to come, they're waiting for a redemption that's greater than just getting put back in the land. And they're waiting for a redemption that's bigger than just being removed from the tyranny and the slavery of Egypt. Jesus came to redeem in a much fuller, realer sense. He came to be the redemption to which all other smaller redemption stories point. Another question is this. Is redemption really what's needed? Are things truly that bad? I mean, is it really so bad that the word picture we would use here is that we need rescuing from slavery by someone else's doing? Yeah, the problem is pervasive. There's an Elvis Costello song. He says, life is a sweetheart, a plaything, a pet, a master. After all, nonsense prevails, modesty fails, grace and virtue turn into stupidity. And so he asks, what shall we do with all this useless beauty? Right question. No answer. He recognizes the problem, but gives no solution. The problem is that 
pervasive. And the problem is powerful. So scripture puts it in terms of bondage and slavery and captivity. It doesn't put it in terms of distraction. Sometimes you people are distracted. It doesn't put it in terms of mistaken. Sometimes you people are mistaken. It doesn't put it in terms of sometimes you people are confused. Or that sometimes you're misinformed or uninformed. No, it describes the pervasive problem, the thing that's wrong in this world, the thing that causes conflict at the we are the world shooting, you know, the recording, and the thing that causes problem in your home, even at the sweetest of times, even at the most protective of times, the, the times when you're trying to maintain peace the most. Problem is powerful, and the problem is also personal. The problem's us. The problem isn't out there. The problem never ultimately was the Egyptians. The problem never really was the Babylonians. The problem isn't someone else. Really, the heart of Christmas and the heart of Jesus' coming is that he came to save me from me. Which leads to another question. The last question, what sense then has Jesus come to redeem us? It says that he's come to redeem the nations, not just Israel. And he's come to redeem them from the one unifying problem. You, fa- you find this even in the Old Testament. While all these other small r redemptions are taking place, there's still a big redemption that needs to come. Psalm 130 With the Lord, their steadfast love, and he will redeem Israel from her iniquities or her sin. You see, the problem isn't just out there. It isn't just someone else. The problem is in here. It's with me. So no surprise then that Matthew 1 says, You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a purpose statement, right? It's a mission statement. Why did he come? Why are we celebrating Christmas? Why was he born and why does it matter? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In our own contemporary redemption stories, like I said, it's, all, it's almost always a self-redemption It's a vindication of the protagonist had been right all along. Or it's a self-affected reversal. The underdog finally conquers. But in the Jesus redemption story, it's the exact opposite. He came for those who recognize they cannot do it. Those who have tried know they cannot affect it. They cannot free themselves. They cannot fix the problems. In fact, the tyranny and the slavery and the bondage of sin is actually self-induced. We're helpless. There's another difference between our modern redemption stories and the Jesus redemption story, and that's how. How redemption happens. In all kinds of redemption movies, redemption comes through explosions, grenade launchers, right? 
Heavy machine guns with infinite ammo, serious butt-kicking. And with the redemption story of the Bible, we're rescued by a baby. We're rescued by a baby who was born in a feeding trough. We're rescued by a baby whose birth was revealed to shepherds. And in first century times, shepherds were not important. They were lowly. They lived with sheep and they were often stinky. That God would reveal himself, the coming, the birth of the king to shepherds gives us a signal of what's to come. He's coming in lowliness, meekness, humility. He's coming as a shepherd himself and we're rescued by his death. Not by heavy machine guns. Not even by laser guns from the future. Jesus comes and, and he comes and lives. He lives in poverty and humility, obedience and righteousness. And he dies a criminal's death. He dies in our place. He dies to take our punishment. He dies that we would be reconciled to God. How? By him being separated from the father. My father, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would be accepted. So Christmas is wonderful and sometimes wonderfully messy. I wonder if you have an explanation for why Christmases aren't perfect. Do you have an explanation for why we haven't yet reached any kind of utopia? Do you have an explanation for why in our best efforts, our greatest intentions, we seem to muck it up a whole lot? Even when it's successful, we can see several hints of the problem all the way through. Listen to Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher and mathematician. He says, there was once in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from his surroundings, seeking from things absent, things he doesn't have yet, help, but he doesn't obtain in the things present. In other words, he wants what he doesn't have because the things he has don't fulfill. We all know this, don't we? We all know that you get something and it's great, and, but there's another one coming out. If you wait long enough, this thing goes bad. Your new computer starts to lock up. You know, your new car starts to need eventually a new transmission and then you wonder should I just get a new one maybe maybe you maybe you know the 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 frequent dynamic of of having one but just wanting another more of them would be the answer but we know from experience that these don't ultimately satisfy but there's so much good news in Christ Christmas is for the weak and the needy Christmas is for the unsatisfied. Christmas is for sinners. In Luke, Jesus says, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. I I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. They don't think they need repentance. They don't think they have a problem. I didn't come for those who don't think that they're sick. 
I came as a physician to those who know they need a physician. Christmas is for those who know and feel in their bones that they need a rescue, that the problem is bad enough to call it redemption. And the problem isn't someone else. The problem is us. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or in Ephesians 1, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Would you bow with me and let's take a moment just to, I don't know, to think through these things, to ponder before we pray, to do some self-introspection. Maybe you haven't yet taken time for that in this busy Christmas season. You haven't yet till now taken a breath and wondered what this is all about. Asked yourself hard questions about these many things around you that are good and aren't ultimate. It's so easy to blame others and think that the problem is something else, circumstances, people, and yet the common denominator is us. Would you now call out to Jesus and ask him for the forgiveness of sins that comes through redemption through his blood, the cost of his life so that we would have his grace and be forgiven and be free, free to worship, free to embrace him, free to enjoy him forever and ever. You can call out to him now where you sit to tell him that you believe, to receive his grace, to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Christian, in your busyness of preparing for this season, have you forgotten all of this? I know when I'm busy and stressed, I'm so quick to think the problem is other people. It's not me. Hmm. Isn't Christmas a reminder that Jesus came into the world to save sinners? And that's me. Isn't a reminder that he's not done. It's a reminder that we don't yet see all things underneath his feet, even though they are. Would you find fresh encouragement, joy, and freedom in the Savior's mercy and blood? Would you recognize again and thank him for it, that he came to redeem? We wait for that redemption no longer.